Our sponsor today is 23andMe.com. 23andMe.com is a genetic service that provides you with DNA reports about where your DNA comes from around the world. So you can basically explore what percentage of your DNA comes from places like Italy, Finland, East Asia, or Africa. And now through August 3rd, you could win a genetic adventure as 23andMe.com will choose one person each day for 23 days to travel to countries based on their DNA. Will you be one of 23 people to win a trip and travel to locations based on your DNA? I have to say that when I first heard um, genetic adventure, I thought, well, that might have to do with creating new genetic material, and that would be super exciting, but that's not what it is. This sounds interesting, too. I am actually very curious um, where it would take me. Uh, Maybe you've been told your whole life that you're part Irish, part German, and part Japanese, but what if your DNA results told you you were also 10.2% Finnish? and 5.6% sub-Saharan African, what would you do? Perhaps you would travel to those places. And travel is more than checking off the tourist sites from a list. It's about understanding yourself a little better through experience. Order your DNA kit for a chance to win a trip to explore your connection to the world and travel like never before. To enter, visit 23andMe.com. That's number 23-A-N-D-M-E.com. No purchase necessary. It is open to legal U.S. residents 18 or older. Visit 23andMe.com slash rules for free entry. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. I'm really excited about this week's show. Uh, It brings together uh, two topics that I'm pretty passionate about. And if you're listening to the show, I think you probably have an interest in as well, which is disability rights and civil rights, which aren't really even two topics. Those are the same things. I'm going to talk to Van Newkirk, who is a staff writer at The Atlantic, covering the intersection of those things, as well as health policy and voting rights. And Anita Cameron, who is a member of ADAPT, a national disability rights group who has been uh, on the forefront of the fight against um, ACA repeal, which, as I point out repeatedly in the interviews, maybe we'll edit out some of the times I do this repeatedly, as I repeatedly point out, um, is not really even ACA repeal. It is about reframing and decimating Medicaid. If these conversations have a theme, it is about how it is that we frame uh, Medicaid assistance in this country. How it is we think about it. The GOP wants you to think about it as help for people who can't help themselves. And that's not what it is. Uh, Rather than explain what it is right now, though, I will just let the people I interview explain it for me. First up, Anita Cameron. Anita Cameron, disability rights activist and ADAP member. Uh, You have been doing activism and organizing for 36 years, but I think the number that people are going to be really interested in is 131. Is that still the correct number? That is the correct number. That is the most recent number, um, 131. That is the number of times that I have been arrested uh, with a DAP over a 31-year period. And that includes last week? Yes. <laughs> because part of the story here is that we wanted you on the show and we could not get in touch with you. Uh, last week, uh, my my intern was like, I don't know, like she's not responding. And it's because you were in jail. I was, I was in jail. Yeah. All right. So maybe we should start with that. Maybe that's a good way to get into this conversation. So Ohio ADAPT, which is one of our newer ADAPT chapters, asked um, ADAPT to come and help them join them um, in uh, going to 
Senator Rob Portman's office. And, you know, we asked that uh, Senator Portman uh, vote no on Better Care Reconciliation Act uh, that uh, either he or his staff come down and talk to us and, and publicly uh, commit to vote no. Um, well, obviously, that did not happen. Mm. And so, shortly after, the police had us removed. Mm. No, this is part of the ADAPT Summer of Resistance, uh, the theme of which our existence is resistance, um, which I think is a great slogan. What I think is kind of interesting here, at least what I've read, you tell me if I've got this right, is that your approach is a little bit different than some of the other more targeted process-oriented approaches to trying to defeat this bill, like people who are trying to target specific senators. ADAPT has taken the the approach of we're just going to make this an issue with everyone. We're going to we're going to target everyone. We're going to let every single senator know that who they're well, hurting, yeah, who they're hurting exactly. and, and what's happening. Exactly. Because, you know, although some people will say, well, you know, my senator from Nevada, you know, he only deals with Nevada constituents, you know, so on and so forth. But these senators, any one of these senators could be the vote that tips this over into, you know, becoming law. Mm-hmm. Any one of those senators. And so they're hurting not only their constituents, they're hurting constituents around the nation. And, you know, if this goes through, people with disabilities will start to die. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, you know, we are desperate. We are angry. We want to live. We're trying to save our own lives. And so we're going to, you know, each of these senators and saying, you know, vote no. Vote no on this and not only vote no on the Better Care Reconciliation Act, but to vote no on any piece of legislation that will cut or cap Medicaid. And what you're doing also is drawing attention to something which I think is finally seeping into public conscience, which is that this bill is not best thought of as an ACA repeal, but rather a Medicaid uh, decimation. Yes, yes, because, you know, they've been wanting to, you know, people hate Medicaid. And so this is... Well, anyone who's not had to... You, you say people, you but you don't actually don't mean people. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, the, the, the ones who are fiscally responsible and all that, they don't like Medicaid. Right. Well, the right, the right. Conservatives don't like right. Medicaid. Yes. Exactly. And so they don't like it. And so they've been wanting to get rid of it for some time. And, um, you know, that's... That's what they're that's what they're doing, you know, on top of, yes, um, an ACA repeal, uh, a wiping out of, you know, President Obama's legacy. I feel that as well. But, you know, definitely um, getting rid of Medicaid um, you know, on the on the backs of the very people who need it. Now, so the. ADAPT and disability rights activists have been especially visible this summer. But as we started out saying, you've been arrested 131 times, been doing this for over 30 years. Um, So we've been doing this, you know, since 1983. Actually, our our quote unquote shot heard around the world was an action that took place in Denver in 1978. On July 5th and 6th, people with disabilities got out of their chairs and lay in the street, you know, blocking buses, you know, trying to get wheelchair lifts on buses. Anytime you go and you see a bus and you see a person in a wheelchair being lifted up on that bus, think of ADAPT because we're the ones who did that. And in some cities were prior to the Americans with Disabilities Act, 
we're the ones who did that. I was going to say, like, let's talk about where what should be more visible about even this mo- movement, right? Because we talk about dis- disability visibility. And people should know that this is obviously the culmination in some ways of a long history of activism by disabled people. Oh, yes. I think people, people were, I mean, we've been doing actions like if Senator McConnell and others, and we've been doing, you know, uh, all kinds of actions that, that were probably even a little more intense than that <laughs> for years. But, you know, for some reason now, everyone has kind of glommed on to adapt. And I think, unfortunately, part of it is because the media has been, um, or certainly some in the media, has been um, more focused on what was done to us mm. than why we were there. Mm. And ADAPT wants to focus uh, on why we were there. Uh, we know, ADAPT people know that there's a chance that things will happen during arrests um, or that arrests will happen and all of that. We're aware of that. You know, we know that as we're putting ourselves, you know, our bodies on the line, our lives on the line, we know that as we're going into the trenches. So for us, you know, although even we might be angry at the way we were treated by police or whatever, the focus still needs to remain on why we were there. And if, for example, at Senator Portman's, we were there to try to get him uh, to commit to voting no on the Better Care Reconciliation Act and to not, you know, to, you know, to vote no on any piece of legislation that would cap or cut Medicare. So that's why we were there. But people focused on um, those of us who were knocked out of our wheelchairs, had wheelchairs thrown on us, you know, being dragged out. That's what people focused on. You know, I think because that's sometimes what catches the eye. Right. So I think it seems like there's sort of a delicate balance here, right? Because you definitely want attention to be on the issue. But you have to admit that some that it is catching the eye you know, when it is um, people being tossed out of a wheelchair, right? Like, that is the thing. Well, that... Yeah, I mean, but, you know, if they said they tossed this woman out of her wheelchair because she was one of the ADAPT members who were there, you know, asking Senator Portman to vote no on the Better Care Reconciliation Act. If they put it like that, you know, then I could deal with that. ADAPT could deal with that. But most of them were just concentrating on they threw this woman out of her chair, right? you know, or they dragged these people, you know, out the door and mm-hmm. weren't explaining why, you know, this was happening. You know, this reminds me of, a, of something that Alice Wong said to me when I interviewed her, where I, I admittedly naively asked her about Trump, you know, mocking the disabled reporter. And, and I'd assumed that that would be something that would have gotten Alice angry. And she pointed out, no, 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 I'm so much angrier about what else he's doing. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's, <laughs> you know, okay. I don't want to sound harsh or hard, but that is little in comparison to what he is wanting to do with the disability community. Right. And, you know, to what the, the right wants to do with the disability community. Right. You know, that is so little in comparison. You know, um, Trump was being ignorant. You know, we're we're used to all kinds of people being ignorant to us. What we have to fight is people trying to kill us 
by taking away the very services and supports that would keep us alive, keep us in the community, keep us able to work or go to school or have that same life and liberty that non-disabled people take for granted. Right. Like, so to take, for example, the police officer throwing the woman out of her chair. Okay, that's that's terrible. Yes. But think about the fact that the government is tossing tens of thousands of people out of their chairs, right? Exactly. Like, exactly. Metaphorically, yes. Yes. Exactly. By, by, you know, people, yeah, by doing what they're doing. Yeah. And, oh, and sort of literally, in a way, like, let's get, to, let's get to something that I think a lot of people don't understand, which is I think people assume that Medicaid and Medicaid expansion is about taking care of sick people or taking care of, I'm putting that in quotes, you can't see me because I'm doing it on the radio, but uh, taking care of disabled people. But really, what's vital about this program is that it allows people to take care of themselves. Exactly. Exactly. It allows people the services and supports that they can remain independent in the community and do all kinds of the things that non-disabled people take for granted, that they could go out shopping, they can go to the movies, they could go visit their friends, they can, you know, um, have their attendants come in, help them get ready for the day and go to work or go to school, you know. um, They can contribute to society and take part in society. Even more, I mean, and, and also, I mean, I would argue taking part in society is contributing to it, you know, like if you are communicating with other people, if you have a network of friends, if you're a part of your community, then you're you're an active member of, of our world. And yeah. and that's what that's what Medicaid allows people to do. Another thing I think people don't realize, and I don't know if you can speak to this, but I'm going to try it, is that when people think about Medicaid, they think about disability as being something you are disabled or you're not disabled, right? Like you're either Someone needs taken care of. You're either able-bodied or not able-bodied, but really, yeah. that's not that's not how quite how it works. No, and it's a whole it's it's a whole spectrum of things. And Medicaid takes care of people that you wouldn't think of. For example, foster children they get their health care from Medicaid, mm-hmm. so you could be someone who is well off, and you have foster children. And their their healthcare is being taken care of by Medicaid. Okay, this goes away. Your foster children are affected. Harry's Razors is another one of our wonderful sponsors. I will tell you right now, I think of Harry's Razors every day because my husband is now a huge fan. And in fact, when we were out shopping the other day at a men's store, uh, he bought, there's a little like uh, aluminum cube you can buy to show off your Harry's razor. It's like a Harry's razor stand. It's from Harry's razors. So his um, razor now sits in a little like, it's a little idol, little totem on our, our bathroom counter. Uh, he loves it. And I think you're probably going to love it too. I had no idea that men's razors were so expensive when you buy them in the store. Harry's uh, eliminates that by offering you a razor subscription. And what is Harry's? It is all about a great shave at a fair price. Jeff and Andy were two guys who were fed up with buying ordinary overpriced razors. And so they started Harry's to fix that. They brought their own German factory with over 100 years of blade making experience to ensure the highest quality. All products are backed by a 100% quality guarantee. And Harry's offers their blades at half the price of the leading five-blade razor, selling directly to you over the internet. Again, my husband, he's kind of a snob. He really likes these razors. Um, They are cool looking as an addition to being a 
terrific razors. And you can get a free one. You can claim your free trial offer from Harry's today. That's a $13 value for free when you sign up and you just cover shipping. Your free trial set includes a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. To get your free trial to Harry's, go to harrys.com slash friends. Again, that's harrys.com slash friends. I don't know. You just saw that that the Senate just gave another $45 billion in the new bill to take care of the opioid epidemic, which is an issue that I, I've a very um, touches me directly. Uh, and that's, for one, not nearly enough money. Let's just. No, that's ridiculous. That's, that's a that's, crisis. It's a that's crisis. But but I bring it up in relation to foster children because it's forty five billion in addition to I think a hundred million um, to take care of the so called opioid epidemic. But the opioid epidemic has all this fallout that actually has a lot to do with the disabled community, not just in the fact that people with substance abuse are technically disabled, but foster children are are, are an outcome of this epidemic. We have yeah. a growing population of foster children who would be, you know, cut out of this. And if people are wondering what we are talking about when we say cut out of this, it's just that no matter how they slice the language, what this bill does is cap Medicaid spending and will force states to do whatever is necessary to keep within that cap. That could look like almost anything, but most of all, it's going to look like trying to figure out how to not take care of the most expensive people. Exactly. Exactly. You know, because society's view of disabled people or that we're useless eaters and all that because people have preconceived notions about how they see disability, mm-hmm. how disability is supposed to present itself, how it's supposed to look, you know, anything like that. And so, you know, um, I've, I've heard people say, yeah, get rid of those useless eaters, mm-hmm. get rid of those, you know, fakers and scroungers, make them work when in the first place so many of us want to work. But can't because of discrimination. Um, many of us want to work, but can't because of the nature of our disabilities. And so we want, you know, to be able to do other things in the community that will, you know, um, that will give us purpose. You know, we can uh, be a part of our communities. Right. Um, and whether we volunteer, you know, at, at places or what, any way that people with disabilities, you know, that we can, we're all worthy. You know, the heartless people who keep writing these bills, you know, trying to outdo each other as to how cool they can be or thinking, okay, well, I'll add in this to placate somebody, you know, but overall the bill is still going to be horrible. Yeah, this is the pro-life party, remember? Like, uh... Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, pro-life. They're actually (laughs) pro-fetus, embryo, and then when that baby is born... Oh, well, you know, they no longer care about them. And I often want to ask people on the right if to say that they're pro-life. Um, I'm sure that they would not want a child aborted who had a disability. That would probably be completely, I mean, for most of us, right? Like, uh, depending on the severity, whatever. But we would be, we would not want that. But then the child is born with a disability and somehow then it becomes a burden. Then that child is written into law as a thing that simply takes away from the ability of the government to allow a tax break to rich people. (laughs) And what they're doing is to me, just it's a form of eugenics. Yeah. You know, Um, it's, it's, it's a culling in a way. And, you know, so that's what we, an adapter out there, you know, 
Like this is the summer of adapt, adapt and resist, save Medicaid, you know, no one, BCRA, um, you know, just, we're just everywhere. We're, we're everywhere. We're coming up like, like mushrooms. And that's, <laughs> and that's good because we need people out there to fight, keep fighting for this. And, you know, some non-disabled people are taking our cue, taking the cue from us. You know, they're, they're come, you know, taking a page out of our playbook, um, you know, or they're, they say their inspiration, you know, it's the brave non, you know, nonviolent, you know, fighters of adapt. Well, yeah. You know, um, <laughs> you're welcoming him to the fight. You'll let him, you'll let him, they'll let him in beside you. You know, it's like, okay, you're welcome. Thanks for, you know, um, you know, just remember that this was started out by people that um, society looked down upon, yeah. you know, that, um, you know, you want to complain about us being on the dole, but, you know, won't give us jobs. You know, you know, I'm listening to you talk. And of course, there's so many parallels just even in the language you're using between what you're doing and the civil rights movement, um, the racial uh, reconciliation, yeah. civil rights movement. Well, adapt folks learned from the civil rights folks. Yeah. Adapt folks sat at the feet of those who marched with Dr. King, you know, and all of that. So we, uh, our, our movement is directly from the civil rights movement. So I want to thank you for joining us to talk about this. Um, people, if they want to know more about adapt and the summer of resistance, uh, I know they can follow the hashtag Crypt the Vote. They can ad- follow the hashtag Adapt and Resist. And what else can they do? Um, Summer of Adapt is one hashtag that we're using. They can go to www.adapt.org. If they're on Facebook, they can follow National Adapt. If they're on Twitter, they can follow at National Adapt. All right. And um, you guys will keep up. You're, you're going to keep screaming, right? Yes. Oh, definitely. Definitely. We're not going to stop. All right. More power to you. And I look forward to following your exploits. Hopefully, you know, they won't last too much longer. Hopefully this will yeah. this will uh, this will end and end well. More power to you. And keep fighting the good fight. Thank you. Are you hiring? Are you perhaps a uh, Republican congressman who will soon be out of work uh, and you need to start your own consulting business? You do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? It's ZipRecruiter. You can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. And that is why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No jungling emails or calls to your office. Again, if you're a Republican congressman, you might be really sick of that by now. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs to ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. One more time, you can try it for free, ziprecruiter.com slash friends. Van Newkirk, you are a writer at The Atlantic who covers politics, health, 
policy and voting rights and the environment. And it is amazing. People probably don't realize all the uh, different intersections that those things have, but they do intersect um, a lot. And I wanted to talk to you about the specific intersection of civil rights and health policy. We were talking with Anita and she says, you know, ADAPT took its tactics directly from the civil rights movement. But there's a bigger connection than that, isn't there? Right. Um, she said that, you know, the tactics were sort of mined from the civil rights movement. I would actually add that a good portion of the civil rights movement and an unheralded part of that movement was black people and people who had disabilities who were also protesting and engaging in direct action in the 60s for their health care. But even beyond that, uh, so the civil rights movement, they... Uh, organized around healthcare, a lot more than people think. Uh, one of the central platforms for many of these civil rights organizations that popped up, including the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, that's uh, Dr. King's organization, uh, it was universal healthcare, a right to healthcare. And they fought for that for two reasons. One was because they realized that none of these other, none of these other gains, like voting rights, education, integration, they didn't matter if you if black people continue to die when they were 50 years old. And it doesn't matter if you're not actually part of society. Voting isn't much of a privilege or much of a right, I should say, if you're not getting able, literally not able to get to the polls. Right. You have to protect the the most basic sort of human right before integration, uh, before other civil rights actually can play a role in people's lives. And that was one thing they knew well uh, during the Mississippi Freedom Summer, you had people trying to organize these really sophisticated sort of um, new actions that had never really been seen before. And one of the big limitations there they found was that the people of Mississippi were just too sick to do a lot of this stuff. Hmm. So some of these early movements actually coalesced in Mississippi during the Freedom Summer where they just basically were putting together these makeshift clinics to uh, get people in the healthcare system for the very first time. And that brings, I guess, the second point up, which is that they understood that the reason why the American healthcare system exists the way it does, which is a largely private system uh, that has been slowly buttressed over time with public health insurance, that exists because, uh, partly because of racism, because there really would be no way in the Jim Crow South uh, to create a universal healthcare system when the entire basis of law was on exclusion. Right. Like you can't create a universal healthcare system if you think that half of the, not half, but if you think some large proportion of the population doesn't even, isn't even really human, right? Like well, yeah, they, I mean, in some places it was half. You're talking the right? South pre-Great Migration. So you're talking really large concentrated populations of, of black people uh, who lived right alongside, you know, white neighbors. And there was no way there, they would create a law. They would get behind a law that, say, let black people go into the local hospital. I'm also really struck from talking to Anita about the language she was um, you know, bringing up, the language that some conservatives use to talk about disabled people and how it rings familiar to how racists um, talk about people of color. Like she said that, you know, a common term, this isn't the exact term, but feeders, you know, moochers leeches, um, uh, people who are uh, exist to like live off of leeching off of society. Um, this idea that it's a it's an 
a burden on the rest of society to have this population. Right. I think it actually, they, they you know, it's the same exact type of language that's employed there. Uh, you look at even sort of the way able-bodied, which is, you know, a perfectly useful term, is wielded sometimes. And the way people think about, I think there were recent comments about people who really need mm -hmm. uh, Medicaid. You know, there's a sort of carving out of some people with disabilities and, and some others. And really, I think the language of dependency is true on both in both cases. And also they want to make it, if you'll excuse my language here, a black and white issue, which is to say they want to make disability a category that is just um, a one zero category. Right. Like you either right. are disabled or you aren't disabled. You're either a black person or a white person. They don't want to recognize a spectrum of people and that people, you know, have different needs. And that one of the things that we can maybe talk more directly about the bill here. But one thing that, that I find alarming about this bill, which I, I repeat what I said with Anita, which is not an ACA repeal. It is a, um, you know, decimation of Medicaid. That is what this bill is. It is not the primary purpose of this bill to me <laughs> is to right. like hack around Obamacare, you know, kind of like twiddle with twiddle with the knobs um, and then destroy Medicaid. Um, but one of the things that Medicaid does as it exists now, especially with the Medicaid expansion under ACA, is acknowledge that spectrum of of disability and allow people all along that spectrum access to different levels of of assistance, let's say, um, an assistance that allows them to participate fully in society. Right. And that's the thing is disabled folks aren't a separate bucket of people, right? Mm -hmm. If you were lucky to live long enough, you will eventually check the box one day on your social security that, that says you're disabled. That's really, you know, how it works. It's a, just another part of the spectrum of health in America. And like other things in science, it's interesting to see how that concept has been sort of left behind in the old Victorian sort of conceptualization of it. But really, I think Medicaid itself, the program itself, the people who are out protesting now, who are showing people on the Hill that people with disabilities have agency, are you know, just regular people in society, what's changing now um, is they're pushing back. But the language of the law, we just got the language of the, the current uh, version of the uh, Better Care Reconciliation Act. It still doesn't capture that, and it still would reduce Medicaid over time. And if you look at public opinion, if you look at the way senators have been talking about it, that's based on a view of Medicaid that really does take, you know, they see it almost as a, I don't, it, beyond welfare, almost as sort of like a, uh, Senatorium, in a way. Mm -hmm. But really, the way that they've structured the bill with using these um, block grants and caps, what it would do is um, force states to make really ugly choices and likely m try to get people off of Medicaid who are the most expensive, who are the hardest to take care of. Um, and who, you know, need Medicaid the most to participate in society. But I want to get more, I want to go back to sort of the intersectionality here, because I know that you're interested in also in how the, the Black influence on public health has continued to play out. We talked at, you know, beginning of the conversation about uh, the disabled and, and Black activists that were part of that first wave of the civil rights movement. But what's, what's been the, the through line there? What's been, what's been carrying that forward? Yeah, so, so one of the sort of 
pieces of that piece that didn't really uh, make it to the, the foreground there was just, you know, like you said, how influential um, black activism has been in the creation of American public health as an idea, as a system overall. Uh, what we don't realize is three of the last four surgeons general, including our current acting surgeon general, they are black and they hail from historically black colleges and universities, uh, some of the earliest sort of public health institutions were at these universities. So the, the back during segregation, when HBCU hospitals were some of the only academic hospitals where black people would go, uh, they doubled as major public health centers in the South, especially. And that system is what got basically expanded and co-opted by the Great Society and ended up becoming our public health safety net. Do you think there's a different understanding in Black communities about public health? I think so. Um, I think deep down, the idea that there's an obligation, that there's multiple layers of obligation. So there's a familial obligation, there's individual obligations, there are community obligations, uh, there are state, local government and business obligations to ensure people's health. And those obligations run, you know, back and forth. And so I think that idea has always been sort of baked into uh, black community language and ideas. And that's a founding aspect of the field of public health. These ideas that aren't really espoused anywhere else in the federal government, where you basically have a paradigm of people having to work together in order to, to meet these goals of an obligation on behalf of other taxpayers to meet other people's goals of community health, where your health is sort of a fact, one of many factors that are influenced by the community as a whole. You know, these are things that really come out of and have been influenced by Black activism. This is perhaps an awkward question, but that's what this show is for. And I'm curious. <laughs> uh, do you think that Black communities have a different understanding of disability? Hmm, I, I do. Um, I think the fluidness of disability has always been very clear to black communities and sort of the precariousness on which we all stand you know, that able-bodied people see as this, you know, huge gap between able-bodied disabled folks. Uh, that line is not all that strong in black communities. I think lots of I forget which survey, but up over a third or maybe even half of all black families, they take care of disabled relatives. They are intimately involved in healthcare decisions for black relatives. One of the earliest jobs for black women involved essentially caring for disabled older people. And that's still, you know, the people who engage in home health work tend to be women of color. So the curtain that policymakers like to draw between uh, ableness and disability really does not exist as strongly in the black community. And that's what happens also when you have such a poor health situation. I'm actually really excited for our next sponsor, which is Blue Apron. Um, I have some ad copy I could read here, but instead I will give you a personal testimonial, which is Blue Apron literally saved my marriage. Uh, I've probably said this before, but... Um, 
you know, the big fights in marriages are never about what you're talking about. They're always about something else. Uh, but my husband and I used to argue about dinner all the time. I mean, we're really probably just working out some boundary issues, but we definitely argued about dinner and who was going to do the grocery shopping. Um, he comes from, a, let's say, a more traditional family. Um, I had certain expectations about the gender roles in our marriage. And Blue Apron fixed that. I mean, we still argue, um, but we don't argue about who's going to do the grocery shopping. It eliminated sort of a source for that, for those uh, issues to play out. And we both really love it. Um, I call them Lego meals, which means that you just take the pieces and you put them together and you get something really cool at the end. And it feels like you're creating something and you and you are. Um, but mostly all that's really required of you is a little bit of precision and some curiosity. I've actually also become a better cook uh, because of Blue Apron. There are techniques that I now know how to do uh, that I didn't know how to do before. And there are sauces that I can make on my own that I didn't know how to make before. Um, I've learned the value of a really hot skillet, basically, in cooking meats. So I'm, I'm a poster girl for this. And their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. That's exactly what they've done for me and my husband. Uh, they have established partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States. And so their seafood is sourced sustainably under standards developed in partnership with Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. Their beef, chicken, and pork come from responsibly raised animals. And the produce is sourced from farms that practice regenerative farming. Because Blue Apron ships the exact amount of each ingredient required for the recipe, they are reducing food waste. And you can recycle the stuff that come, the food comes in. I want to add that because sometimes people think there's too much waste in Blue Apron. But you can recycle almost everything that the food comes in. And for less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Choose from a variety of new recipes each week or let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. Recipes are not repeated within the year by Blue Apron. My husband and I actually save our favorite recipes. We have a little, you know, a notebook with them. Uh, and we've actually made them on our own. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients that can be prepared in 40 minutes or less I would just, pro tip, allow a little extra time. That is my one one caveat with the 40 minutes. But check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with shipping by going to blueapron.com slash friendslike. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash friendslike. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. I just want to underscore something you said that caught my imagination and attention, which is the idea that in Black communities, the physical fragility of a body is just much more intelligible, much more a part of people's lives. And this is it ties back into Black Lives Matter. It ties into police brutality and the fact and the way that Black people are just at higher risk in their person um, than than white people are. I mean, if you look at people focus on lifespans, on on mortality as their main health metric, but what they don't realize is, say, if black people are dying, black men are dying at 65, what's most likely is there's a 10 to 20 year period of disability before that early death. Mm. And so that's just a part of middle age for lots of black people. I feel like what I see when I'm in in black communities is a more... um, 
just everyday acknowledgement of disability sometimes. Well, I think, yeah, Black families often are caretakers for people who are disabled. Right. And I feel like I see that. And there is just more acknowledgement of, like you said, the spectrum and people are part of that community in a a fuller way. I think white people, we, I'm going to just make a general assumption here, but I think there's a a tendency to shut away the people that are physically um, uncomfortable for us. Well, and that's the thing is, is there haven't really been resources to say, uh, do what former paradigms for people say with uh, intellectual disabilities. You can't really ship them off like people did for decades. You can't send older folks with disabilities off to nursing homes. You can't pay for it. Mm-hmm. So basically, the the tendency of greater society to physically marginalized dis- disabled folks. You, black communities never had the means to do that. So we've gotten a little philosophical, like kind of bring us back to, to maybe something a little more tangible in the real world. Um, it is Thursday. Uh, the Senate bill just came out. The new Senate bill just came out. Do you have any sense of what the what's going to happen next? Yep. So uh, this, it's sitting in front of me right now. Um, it basically amends the old uh, Better Care Reconciliation Act by including uh, potentially the Cruz Amendment, which which lets uh, plans offer bare-bones packages on the exchanges. Uh, it uh, will add a little bit more money for opioid uh, treatment and... A little, health. little bit. <laughs> well, it's, I think the total now is something north of $40 billion, which seems like a lot, but when you really think about the cost of the disease... And how much we're spending now, it's it. I don't know if it'll do the job. I'll tell you right now, um, because I have the numbers at my fingertips because I looked it up. Uh, CDC for one year alone, I believe 2015, estimated the total economic cost of the opioid epidemic to be 75 billion in that year alone. So, right. (laughs) So it'll help. And I think, you know, every every little bit helps. But you're on the other hand, it keeps the one. it really keeps med- the Medicaid cuts in the first bill about the same. There are a couple extra differences here where uh, states can apply for public health emergency waivers that will um, raise their per capita caps, in essence. But still, you're decreasing the amount of money for the program that is used to fight the opioid epidemic and covers the most people with mental health, substance abuse, and behavioral health problems in the country. So you're injecting $45 billion and taking out still uh, almost three-quarters of a trillion. You know, the math doesn't quite add up there. And it also looks at the opioid epidemic as a singular thing. Um, and not as something that has ramifications throughout um, public health, uh, which this is my that's kind of my hobby horse. So I can talk about this specific part of it for a long time. I do think the more important part that people need to get their heads around, I think the opioid epidemic, again, because it affects so many white people, um, so many people and period. But that's something that people can really grab onto. And that's caught a lot of attention that cuts to that. Um, And people should know that 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 45 billion is not enough. But the main thing here I want to get people to care about is that this reframing of Medicaid as a welfare, even worse than welfare somehow, like as something that is that is a, a, a favor that society does to people who can't take care of themselves, basically, um, that that is the real, um, there's a lot of evil in this bill, 
But that reframing, I think, is probably one of the most disturbing things to me. Yeah, and I think people like to think about Medicaid as a safety net, and that's usually how it's described. But I don't really think it functions as such and hasn't for some time. It's basically been a scaffold that makes the rest of the public health system work to the extent that it currently works. It provides first access in schools. It is, you know, again, the number one provider for people with mental health uh, and substance abuse, abuse issues. Medicaid helps schools and education systems uh, close their budgets and meet their uh, and, and close their budget shortfalls. It, it basically, you know, I think it's the engine of American public health, and people aren't realizing that. And, and cutting it back to basically an old uh, English poor uh, program, the way that the law seems to want to do. That will have significant significant impacts, not just on you know the, the 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 people who need it most, like like as the senators often say, but on the structural integrity of the American healthcare system. And unfortunately, I think that's a good place to end our conversation. I say good place to end. I just mean uh, it gives us a place to jump off for the next part of our conversation, which will have to happen um, after you know we see how the bill rolls out. Um, but thank you for joining us, Dan. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, do you want to t- give us your Twitter handle and explain it in case people don't, uh, <laughs> in case there's, in case people don't understand why your Twitter handle is not your name? Yeah. Uh, so my Twitter handle is five fifths, F I V E F I F T H S. And it's a fun reference to the three fifths <laughs> compromise. Uh, a little fun. Where, yeah, it, it, it's all fun. <laughs> Um, thank you so much. Thank you again so much um, for joining us. And we will catch up again some other time, sometime soon, I hope. Sounds good to me. And that is it for today's show. As usual, if you have made it this far, I assume you're a fan of some sort. So please head on over to iTunes and rate and review. Rating is awesome. Reviewing is very extra, um, but it helps us a lot, um, both on the charts and it helps you find the show. So do that. If you want to give some feedback, you can do that via Twitter to our guests who are both on Twitter and very active on it. Anita is at Adapt Anita. Uh, Van Newkirk, uh, as he said, is at Five Fifths. The show is at Crooked underscore Friends. And we have an email, too, which is with friendslikepod at gmail.com. I wanted to add a little bit of a note uh, to the end of the show. So Don Jr., um, I'm not going to try to keep up with the breaking news about him. Uh, His actions have been rather inexplicable, and I won't even try to explain those. What I want to say, or what I want to comment on, is how people have been talking about Don Jr. I'm not coming to his defense, don't worry, but people have been making fun of him, and they've been using some really specific language about it. In particular, I'm thinking of a CNN commentator who said, what was he, dropped on his head as a baby. And... Ha ha, ha ha ha, you know, funny. And if you think I'm a snowflake for finding a problem with that, I just want to point out when I said something uh, about the ableist uh, language in that insult, I got a lot of people with traumatic brain injuries telling me that, you know, they had traumatic brain injuries and none of them were tempted to commit treason. So maybe we should think of another reason that 
Trump might have done what he'd done. And in fact, I want to point out that um, Donald Trump Jr. has had literally every advantage in life, literally every advantage um, from, you know, family, money uh, to health. He's, from, as far as we can tell, perfectly healthy. He's just ignorant and entitled. And you might be tempted to call him dumb or stupid or, using ableist language a bit, an idiot or a moron. I'd just like everyone to kind of back away from thinking of him as intellectually disabled and focus instead on him being a dipshit or an asshole or a nitwit. Those are all good. And also they focus rather on his entitlement and his ignorance, as I said, and not on whether or not he can think like the rest of us. Maybe he can't. But I personally think that his weird, inexplicable behavior is not a function of lack of intellect, but lack of curiosity and a feeling of total insulation from his actions. Let's hope those actions have consequences at some point. That is it for the show. Uh, Please join us again next week. This has been With Friends Like These. I'm still Anna Marie Cox.